Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Welcome to Rational in Portland. Thank you for tuning in. Today on the show, we have Karen Lewis from NWEA. NWEA is Northwest Evaluation Association. They're a global not-for-profit educational services organization located here in Portland. They partner with over 3,500 educational organizations worldwide to provide better research-based adaptive assessments, professional development, and research services. Karen has a PhD. She's the director of the Center for School Student Progress at NWEA, where she leads a team of researchers that operate at the intersection of K-12 education research, practice, and policy. She's a former data fellow with the Strategic Data Project at the Harvard Center for Education Policy Research. She completed a National Science Foundation-funded postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Colorado Boulder. She earned her PhD from the University of Oregon in social psychology. We're so lucky to have Karen because she has been absolutely everywhere. If you Google her name, you will find her quoted numerous times in the New York Times, NBC News, the New York Post, um, MSNBC, uh, the Brookings Institution. She uh, did a piece about the, how the pandemic has had devastating impacts on learning. What will it take to help students catch up? Karen was quoted in May 2022's Center for Education Policy Research at Harvard's report regarding the consequences of remote and hybrid instruction during the pandemic. She was actually quoted numerous times in that report. She's also been featured on Good Morning America talking about pandemic learning loss. Dr. Lewis, we're so excited to have you. Thank you for coming on the show. Now, NWEA does the MAP growth testing. Is that right? That's right. We are responsible for the MAP growth test. What is the MAP growth test? So it is what we call an interim assessment, and it's used in about a quarter of public schools across the country. And the MAPRO test is different from what some parents might be used to using as a summative end-of-year test. And those are the kind of assessments that are basically at the state level that schools use to ask the question, is this school getting kids to where we want them to be in terms of grade-level standards? which is important information to know how our schools are doing. But our assessment is an interim assessment and is really used more as a a tool, more like a thermometer to understand where kids are in the moment, understand what their strengths are, what their challenges are. And it's used multiple times throughout the year, typically in the fall, winter, and spring. So we can understand where kids started out at the beginning of the year and how they're growing over the course of the year, which gives important information back to teachers so they know how to better support kids, how to group them so they can get kids matched to the kinds of instructional needs that they're experiencing um, and keep track of that over the course of the year. What subjects are tested? We have a range of different assessments. We're most known for our math and reading assessments, but we also have assessments in language usage and science. Our research has typically focused on math and reading though. 
And how many students are tested? Well, we are tested in about a quarter of public schools across the country. Um, so the analysis that we do in our COVID research, this most recent brief, for instance, includes um, 8 million students that tested with us over the COVID period. And we compare that to another sample of 8 million students that tested prior to the pandemic to better understand how the pandemic is impacting kids' education outcomes. Can you give us any context for the data that NWEA had prior to the tests that were given post-pandemic and post-remote learning? In other words, what did NWEA already know? Yeah, so this has been an ongoing research agenda for our team here at NWEA, which really kicked off when school shut down in March of 2020. And one of the big handicaps for educators in that moment, besides having to, you know, completely pivot to remote instruction, was that that end of year spring testing was canceled for almost everybody. So teachers were left, teachers and school administrators were left in this place of having really little information about how the impact, the impact of the pandemic at that point. So when schools initially shut down, we started off our research program by making some projections for how we thought the pandemic might impact kids based on what we know from other ongoing bodies of research about, for instance, what happens when kids are out of school over the summer months or when kids have prolonged um, absences. How does that impact growth and achievement? And so we initially estimated that we would see the pandemic would impact both reading and math achievement. We expected it to hit math a little bit more hard. And we were able to then track students once they re-entered the classroom in the fall of 2020 some remote, some in person, and then testing resumed. So people started using the map growth assessment again. And we could revisit those initial projections about the, um, on the impact of the pandemic in those early days with real data. And what we found was that we were starting to show signs, see signs of the impact of the pandemic on students' math achievement. And even as early as the fall of 2020, kids were entering the classroom with math achievement levels that were lower than what we'd expect in a pre-pandemic year. The bright spot then was that reading was still holding steady, but we continue to track um, kids' outcomes on our assessments over the course of the 2020-21 school year, and that bright spot that we saw in reading at the beginning of the year had really faded out by the end of the year. Um, so when I think about what's happened over the course of the last two-plus years, to me, in 2020-21, that first full, full school year after the onset of the pandemic, we were really in a nosedive where we were seeing the accumulation of unfinished learning due to kids, both in some cases not having any instruction in those early days when schools shut down, but also this disruptive experience of having to transition to virtual school. This most recent year, the good news is that we have at least pulled out of that nosedive. And when kids started the 21-22 school year, we found that at least the bright spot then was that unfinished learning was no longer getting worse. We weren't seeing continuing increases in the impact of the pandemic. So we pulled out of that nosedive. And the good news when we look at student achievement at the end of this most recent school year is that kids have started to make achievement gains. So the way their test scores increase over the course of the school year, that's returned to pre-pandemic levels. So that's really good news that we're seeing kids learning at rates that mirror pre-pandemic trends. But the problem is learning at pre-pandemic rates is not gonna be enough to really get us out of the hole that we found ourselves in after these last two years. So the analogy I like to use is if we pulled out of that nosedive and returned to this kind of level of stasis in terms of growth looking average, 
that really isn't enough to get us back to where we need to be. And we need to be looking at better than average growth to really start to make up some of the gaps that we're seeing as a result of the pandemic. My understanding is that there's a difference between the achievement level that a kid might show on a given test and growth that kids might show over the course of the year. Does NWEA track both of those? And how do those statistics weave in with this learning loss or this nosedive? Yeah, it's a crucial point. There's a difference in talking about what uh, achievement level and growth. So achievement level is like, where are kids in terms of their, what's their math test score and how does that compare in terms of a percentile ranking? We can also think about how kids compare in terms of the growth that they're showing over the course of the year. And that's a key part of our assessment is that it's typically used in the fall, winter, and spring. So we have information both about achievement levels, but also growth in those achievement uh, scores. And what we're seeing is that growth, so the test score increases over the course of the school year, the rates of growth look similar to pre-pandemic levels. But if you imagine two parallel lines, and that's what we're seeing, that growth now is parallel to pre-pandemic trends, but there's still a pretty big gap between those two lines. And if we know anything about parallel lines, it's that they do not meet. So we don't want kids to continue to be behind. We don't want to continue to see these achievement gaps between uh, how kids are achieving now and where we would have expected them to be absent the pandemic. So we need to make achievement actually above average so we can start to gain some traction and getting those uh, scores back up. So did remote learning push kids back behind where they would have otherwise been? Yeah, that's consistently what we're seeing. When we look at achievement levels currently relative to pre-pandemic trends, which is our kind of our best case counterfactual of where kids might have been absent the pandemic, We've continually seen that kids are achieving at lower levels than we'd expect in both math and reading, but the impact has been larger in math. So we're seeing percentile point declines, for instance, between five to 10 percentile points, depending on the grade, which is the gap between where kids are now and pre-pandemic kind of baseline averages. What is percentile rank and what does it tell us? Obviously, I'm going to need some kind of statistics class refresher here. I didn't take a statistics class. What a percentile ranking tells us is where kids rank relative to their academic peers. And our organization publishes regularly what we call norms that help us understand. We take a really large representative sample and we calculate what a nationally representative average is for, let's say, third grade math achievement. And what these percentile rankings do is situate a kid or a group of kids performance relative to those norms. And our norms are all based on pre-pandemic data. So if I tell you a kid is at the 60th percentile, you know his test score is at the same as or better than 60% of his peers pre-pandemic. So what these percentile ranges tell us is kind of a shifting of where kids are now relative to where they would have stood relative to those pre-pandemic norms. It shouldn't be conflated or confused with telling us about grade level standards because one feature of our test is that it is grade level agnostic. We want to be able to assess a kid's achievement level, whether they're at grade level, above grade level, or below grade level. We have a better and more precise measure of their achievement when we uh, um, ignore that grade level information, basically. So percentiles don't give us um, an easy picture into what that means in terms of grade level standards, because those vary state by state. And this is a national analysis of what's happening across the country. Is there a difference between kids losing ground and kids not progressing as fast? Are both of those things happening um, or is it separate? 
It's a little bit of both. So we see, for instance, in the school, the first full school year after the onset of the pandemic, 2020-21, kids were actually both achieving lower, so their achievement status was lower than pre-pandemic trends. They were also growing at lower rates than pre-pandemic trends. It was a more sluggish rate of growth. So the result is if kids were already below pre-pandemic averages at the start of 2020, they were also growing at lower rates, which meant the gaps that were already there in fall of 2020 widened by the time we got to the spring of 2021. So this year, what we're most excited about is that we still have these gaps. There's still a distance between where kids are and where we would want them to be based on pre-pandemic trends, but they're growing at rates that are consistent with pre-pandemic averages. You've worked on a project with others called Road to Recovery. Tell us about that. Our partners and some colleagues that we work with at the Harvard Center for Ed Policy Research and the Calder Center at the American Institutes for Research have worked with us on a partnership we call the Road to Recovery Project, where we're working with a consortium of districts from across the country to help them understand how successful their recovery interventions are. And that group has taken on a research project to ask just that question that you just proposed of, do we see differences depending on whether schools stayed remote for longer or not? And their findings are pretty much what you'd expect, that there are there's more unfinished learning for the districts that chose to stay remote for longer. And when we share those data, we want to be really careful that it's not castigating blame here, because we know that those were decisions that were really hard for schools and districts to make in a moment where it wasn't clear what the right solution was. And um, those were just decisions made under duress. But I think it's also still important to think about how we use this information moving forward if um, we find ourselves in a position like this again, where we have some major crisis, that means we need to think differently about education. Well, the data suggests that remote learning was not as effective as in-person learning. And in fact, we see in the cases where schools or districts were remote for longer, we see even more stark widening of gaps between high poverty and low poverty schools, which is especially concerning. Well, and part of the reason that's concerning, right, is because those gaps were already there so if they're widening further, that's really, really concerning. Those gaps were always there. If we look back to 2019, before any of us ever said the word coronavirus, there were already pretty sizable gaps between high student schools that serve higher and lower proportions of students and families in poverty. But what we've seen over the last two years is that, is that those gaps have widened. So kids in high poverty schools were hit harder than kids in low poverty schools. And we can imagine a number of kind of mechanisms that might explain why that is. They could be in communities that were harder hit by the virus and so had other physical, social, socioeconomic tolls of the virus. It could be that they're in communities that are less connected to the Internet and have a harder time accessing kind of resources that support Zoom school. These could be families that have different situations professionally that made it less um, were less conducive to be able to transition and work from home and support kiddos that were learning at home. It's most definitely going to be a multi-layered kind of uh, explanation of what's happening there. But we see that the gaps that were already there between high and low poverty schools prior to the pandemic have been exacerbated, but in some cases by as much as 20% over the last two years. And that's even more notable in the districts that were remote for longer. 
did any kids in high poverty schools start doing better at all once school opened for them again? That's another point of good news is that when we started this analysis, my biggest fear was that we would only have good news to report for the more advantaged kids that would be in low poverty schools, that we'd see all of the good things happening. But we actually see evidence of rebounding um, in both high and low poverty schools. So that's a really exciting um, piece of data to share. However, just because we see rebounding, we can't negate the fact that the gaps were larger to begin with for students in high poverty schools. So there's more ground to regain there. So even though we're seeing this evidence of rebounding, we can definitely expect it's going to take longer to get to recovery in high poverty schools because there's just more ground to regain. We know these schools got some federal money, but what are they going to spend it on? And can they catch these students up? Are the students going to catch up? Yeah, so that's a question that's been on our mind as well, especially knowing that schools and districts are facing this fiscal cliff at the end of the 2023-24 school year when they have deadlines to spend all of the recovery funds that the federal government has provided. So a key part of our analysis in this most recent brief was to ask the question, okay, we see some evidence of improvements this most recent year. If we were to continue at this rate of improvement based on what we see this last year, how long would it take us to get to recovery? Um, and those estimates are pretty scary. Uh, for the typical elementary school student, we're estimating at least three years to get to a place of full recovery, but five plus years for students in middle school. And I should say our analysis focuses on grades three through eight, so I can't speak to what's happening for high schoolers. But for middle school students, we're seeing um, less evidence of improvements. It seems like those, those age groups or those grades are really more in a place of stagnation. Um, and that five-plus year timeline is concerning, first of all, because it certainly exceeds this fiscal cliff. And second of all, that's longer than many of those kids will still be in the classroom at all. So that really, I think, fuels a sense of urgency for us as educators and um, the education policy space and researchers to be really thinking about how we can support that age range specifically and get them their needs addressed. How do the impacts of remote learning vary by race and ethnicity? And I'm specifically thinking of underrepresented and historically oppressed groups and ethnicities and that intersection between those historically oppressed ethnicities and lower socioeconomic classes? So I can't speak um, to the question specifically about remote versus in-person learning, but we have been tracking whether or not historically disadvantaged groups have been harder hit by this pandemic. And I've already spoken about low versus high poverty schools. Um, and we know that poverty and race, they don't exist in a vacuum. Those two things are often intersecting. And so we've asked questions about both how do these kinds of um, impacts of the pandemic that we're seeing differ by race and ethnicity, and how also if we consider the intersection of race, ethnicity, and school poverty level, what do we see there? And the results are probably as um, disheartening as you can expect. And we've seen that uh, Hispanic, Black, and Indigenous student groups have been hardest hit compared to Asian American and white students. We also know that there were already pre-existing equity gaps between those groups of students prior to the pandemic, and those two have widened over the last two years. Um, and it's especially dramatic if we consider students of color, those disadvantaged groups, in high poverty schools. The good news, it's everything I'm sharing with you today is really this balance of good and bad news. We do see signs of improvements across race and ethnicity groups. It's not as if this is just concentrated amongst white and Asian American students. 
But similar to the story we tell or told you about what's happening in high versus low poverty schools amongst Black, Indigenous, and Hispanic students, because they've been harder hit to begin with, there will be more ground to regain for those student groups. So it's hopeful that we're seeing signs of rebounding, but we have a further way to go. And we need to absolutely be sure that we're tailoring supports to students in proportion to their need. My biggest fear is that um, we see people take this kind of one-size-fits-all band-aid approach where the same services and supports are given to all students when we know that will meet the needs of some but fall short in meeting the needs of kids that have been hardest hit and will be get the most traction in helping us really recover from this pandemic if we are providing supports and services that are proportional to the needs of the kids that we serve. Do you all have any data about what needs and supports work or or what or even what schools are, are looking at for what they need to do to, to get people where they need to be? So that is the million dollar question right now. We know that um, states and schools and districts have been really scrambling to get recovery services and interventions in place. And that's been a focus of the project I mentioned earlier, the Road to Recovery work, where we're collaborating with other researchers at other organizations and a consortium of districts from across the country. And so we're collecting information back from those partners about what kind of recovery strategies they're using and then pairing that with their achievement data so that we can start to paint a picture of what is working, what isn't working, um, and hope to learn some new best practices around implementation. It's too early to be able to share any findings there, but the types of interventions that we're really seeing amongst these partners are the kinds of strategies that add back in those instructional opportunities, because we know that's what kids have lost out on these last two years. It's not as if um, learning loss is a problematic term, because it's not as if you know knowledge just trickles out of kids' ears when they're not in the classroom. What they've really missed out on are the opportunity to learn. And so the kinds of interventions are things that try to support kids and get those opportunities back in front of them. So things like summer school, um, extended school day, uh, double dosing math, so they get more instruction in areas where, they're, where they have more challenges. I think it's important to brace ourselves and remember that the 21-22 school year was not the roaring comeback that we all hoped for. It was still an incredibly difficult year where schools were facing staff shortages. They were facing ongoing waves of illness that really impacted everything from um, kids being absent more often to having even a harder time getting those teacher substitutes replaced. We hear about you know the staffing shortages affecting things like busing schedules so that they didn't have enough bus drivers and had to shift the school day accordingly, which cut down on instructional opportunities. So I think it's important to emphasize that it was a really hard year and that we see any signs of improvement at all, which we do, should be celebrated as a success. But I think we also need to kind of brace ourselves and prepare that it was still a really hard year. And it's a really big lift for a school in a district to be able to take those federal dollars, decide exactly what strategies they want to use, and then implement them. And it's certainly not something you can walk in on the first day of school and just decide, okay, hey, we're going to give high dosage tutoring to every kid. Um, let's go. Day two, because that too takes a lot of human capital, right? I mean, you can't have high dosage tutoring without the tutors. So I think we need to make it clear that this last year was kind of um, a pilot year in some ways of trying to understand what kinds of interventions and services can be offered to schools and learn how to do it well. So going into 22, 23, I think there will be some, some lessons learned about how to do that and do it well. I guess... Does it make sense to use the term learning loss? Is that the right term? Because I guess when kids weren't learning as much or as well, it's it's like missed. It's more like they missed learning. I don't know. What terminology should we be using? 
that's how I think about it as well. Um, and instead of learning loss, I think about it in terms of unfinished learning or disrupted learning, um, because it's the yeah, kids weren't losing actual knowledge. They lost out on the opportunity to learn, which meant they're just not getting those kinds of learning opportunities that we would have expected. Are the plans, as far as you know, are, are the plans for interventions in schools to try to catch up, are they different in, let's say, middle school than elementary school, where it sounds like the gaps are maybe narrowing where students seem to be, I don't know, maybe there's some hope that they'll catch up before they graduate from high school. I don't really have uh, data at the national level to speak to that. And I, and I would be curious to see if anyone does, because one of my suspicions is, as you just stated, you're right, that we are seeing more signs of improvements for younger students relative to older students. And I don't know why that is. It could be that, um, our research and that of our kind of peers doing similar research has shown that younger kids have been hardest hit throughout this pandemic. So it could be that that message got out and when schools and districts were taking a kind of triage approach and they wanted to know who best to support, well, they focused on the kids that were showing the greatest impact. And that could be why we're only seeing signs of improvement for youngest learners. It could also be that maybe middle schoolers are a harder group to intervene upon. It could have been harder for middle schoolers to really get reintegrated into the classroom after a year of learning at home. Um, we know that's a really kind of peak age range for engaging in those social relationships. And it could have simply been more detrimental for those kids and they're having a harder time recovering from that really rough year. Who knows? We don't have the data to speak to that, but I hope that um, others out there are starting to collect that information and make sense of it. What kind of projects and data collection is NWEA going to be focused on as we move forward? So this will absolutely be an ongoing huge focus for us in terms of our research. Um, it's an interesting professional challenge to be in an organization where we have access to this level of information about kids and be able to provide this information back to our partners to help really understand what the scope of the pandemic has been. But I would say it's not a, an easy to story an easy story to continue to tell over and over again about how disheartening the results have been and how the devastating impacts of the pandemic. And it's our hope that we can start to tell a more constructive story as time moves on, particularly as we're collecting information about what schools are doing to help support student learning and get recovery back on track. So that will be a key emphasis moving forward. I think there's other important student groups to pay attention to in this moment. We have really kind of focused the story about what's happening for the average kid right in the middle of the distribution. And we have less insight to what's happening for students out on the tails. So you can imagine there might be different things happening, for instance, for kids that were incredibly uh, lower achieving at the start of the pandemic relative to those that were very high achieving. How have we been supporting kids on the tails of the distribution over the last two years and how we've seen different outcomes? For instance, you could imagine that a kid that's on the um, higher achieving end of the spectrum may have also kind of um, been receiving less attention over these last two years as schools were taking more of a triage approach. What's growth like for those high achievers? On the other end of the spectrum, lower achievers might have um, also been impacted by the just kind of deluge of needs students and our teachers and schools are needing to meet in this moment and may not be getting the kind of supports that they need over the last two years. So really, we want to take a, a broader picture of what's happening all across the spectrum, not just in the middle, to understand really how the impacts of the pandemic may have varied for kids. Is that just a 
difference in the way you analyze data then, or how would you go about focusing on that? Yeah, so it just it's a matter of looking at where kids were at the start of the pandemic, like looking at kids that started out on the lower each achieving end of the spectrum versus the high, and then tracking those kids over the last two years to understand what their growth has been like to see if we might see differential patterns. What about kids with disabilities? Is there any data distinguishing them from other students? We don't have access to that in our data at the national level that schools get to choose what to report back to us about kids. And that's often protected information that schools don't share with us. Um, So I've seen other research on a smaller scale looking at what the impacts have been for kids, for instance, enrolled in special education services. And it has been more dire than what we see in the uh, in the rest of the school population. But I can't speak to that specifically in our data. Um, I know you said that the data that you have is more robust in regard to junior high school and elementary school students. Why is that? Is Are the high school students not taking MAP tests? It's less frequently used in high school students because we test kind of the broad domains of math and reading. And once you get past the middle school years, um, instruction often becomes more specialized. And so our assessment doesn't make as much sense for a student, for instance, that's enrolled in a geometry class, knowing about their general math skills becomes less relevant to providing classroom instruction. And we offer other services and products that are more tailored to those course specific kinds of math skills, um, but they're just used on a less broad scope. So we don't have the same kind of data coverage. Do you have any knowledge of whether districts are, I know we talked about things like summer school and double doses of math. I've heard a little bit about Tennessee engaging in tutoring. Do you have any knowledge about whether a lot of these districts are, I mean, like you said, there's the staff shortage, right? So do you have any knowledge about whether they're able to hire tutors? Uh, I can just share what I've also kind of seen in my broad read of what's happening. And high dosage tutoring is one of the strategies that has the best supporting evidence for its effectiveness compared to some of the other strategies because it is so tailored to meeting kids where they're at. You can imagine that is more effective than just providing a broad summer school experience where kids are getting more instruction. But with tutoring, it really kind of hones in on where kids are, the challenges that kids have and helping support them. Um, But as effective as that has been in the previous literature, we have no knowledge about how to do it at the scale and scope to meet the problem that we're seeing right now. And the kinds of um, places like you're mentioning Tennessee, where I, I see some real excitement is when people are getting really innovative about how to find enough tutors to make uh, connect to students to get their needs met. So things like using high school students or um, recruiting college students to be able to get access to a whole new kind of crop of workforce to help meet the demand for what's needed in terms of tutoring. And when you say high dosage tutoring, is that a term of art? Do you, is that, does that mean something specifically like a certain number of days per week or a certain number of kids? That's a good question. I don't know specifically how folks are defining what high dosage means in terms of their tutoring. How many kids... Do you you have data about how many kids continued to opt in to the MAP testing versus pre-pandemic levels, and did that change at all? That's a good question. So we've been tracking this kind of issue of missing data in all of our research thus far, because in 2020-21, you're right, that there were lower levels of testing compared to a typical year. And it was mostly important to focus on this because it wasn't as if it was just a random group of kids that was more likely to be missing from assessment data. It was also the student groups that were hardest hit by the pandemic. So for us as researchers, that meant we needed to put a really heavy asterisk on our finding that we're showing some pretty um, 
uh, alarming declines here, and they differ by school poverty and race ethnicity, but those results were actually probably a rosier picture than what's happening in reality, knowing we were more likely to be missing student voices from some of those hardest hit groups. Um, in 21-22, we have less evidence of missing data at the scope we saw in 2020-21, and also less evidence that it was systematically different between those key groups that we were concerned about. Um, but that has been an ongoing concern over the pandemic, particularly in 2020-21, when schools were, in some cases, switching to remote testing, when their school students were learning remotely. And we did some work to make sure that our assessment was as valid when used in a remote setting as it was in the, in, in the classroom. When we talk about elementary school kids, is there any distinction in the data between, let's say, the lower grades and the upper grades, like kinder through second and three through five, and whether there was a group in elementary school that was hit harder? I'm assuming it was the older ones based on your junior high data, but I don't know. We've actually focused on grades three through eight in our data and have not yet released anything on what's happening for the K2 space. Um, in this most recent release, we do track kids that were in first and second grade at the start of the pandemic, at the onset of the pandemic, and they look pretty similar to their upper older elementary peers. But I think there are some important questions to ask for kids that were in those really the younger grades at the onset of the pandemic, particularly in reading, knowing that those foundational reading skills that kids pick up in kindergarten, first and second grade are really so key to developing as readers. So that's certainly a group that we are keeping our eye on moving forward to understand um, whether there are the impacts of the pandemic on their reading skills might linger longer than for older kids, given that they were really disrupted in that earliest phase of picking up those foundational skills. Is it fair to say that these MAP test scores declined for, in general, all students in all categories, and that those students who are economically disadvantaged and are part of a racial group or ethnicity that has been historically oppressed were hit even harder than, well, I, I guess it sounds like we would put Asians, you, you put Asians more in the group with white children. Is that right? Asians did not do as poorly, uh, fare as poorly as, as black, indigenous, and Hispanic populations? Yes, that's true. So we do see declines across all of the student groups that we studied. They are more um, stark amongst indigenous, black, and Hispanic students. Asian American and white students have shown lower impacts of the pandemic. And if we think about what those kind of pre-pandemic achievement levels were, it was very much a stair-step pattern. We have Asian American, white, and then Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous. Um, and the gaps between those groups have only widened over the last two years. And and by the list you just gave, you're listing the ethnicities by who 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 tended to do the best and who continued to do the best and who who tended to not do so well and and that continued except the gaps widened exactly so were people surprised about these results because I, I know remote instruction didn't work for anybody and, and I'm not saying people would have been surprised that remote instruction was not effective but I more mean you know as as you looked around the country kind of as the pandemic was going on this the more economically advantaged students, the the 
white students, probably some Asian students, although I live in Portland, Oregon, so I can only speak anecdotally about the whitest city in America. But when I looked around, I saw people with resources forming pods and hiring tutors. Um, but it sounds like, you know, everybody was was pretty hard hit. Were people surprised that even students who tended to do, I'm not talking about the tail ends, the high performers, but just in general, students that tended to do okay on these tests, white kids from middle class or upper middle class backgrounds also were hit by the pandemic? That's a good question. I think also kind of skewed by my own perspective as a white woman in Portland, as you say, which is a very white city and and, an affluent part of the city where I did have access to being able to get a Zoom tutor to help my kid out and pot up with another family. I think from my own experience, I know how hard that was for us and our our blessed resource situation and that I saw those impacts in my own kid and in the data for families like me it was not a surprise at all because I personally witnessed how hard it was and kind of projecting my own experience. Like I was not performing at my best in 20, 2021. I think most of us understand that was just a really hard year for everybody. Um, so I think I haven't seen a lot of surprise that we've seen these across the board declines, even though they are uneven and the crisis has certainly hit other groups harder than others. Why do you think the differences were so profound in math? What is it about math? I think our data and that of kind of other ongoing research studies suggest that math is more dependent on the classroom experience for development, that kids have more opportunities to develop their reading skills outside of the classroom. Um, But math really seems to be more connected to targeted instruction on specific content, whereas reading can happen outside of the, the daily classroom experience. Is it your understanding, or do you have any understanding about whether districts are are actually absorbing this data and about whether there are conversations outside of, let's say, academia about maybe how we need to do things differently. I mean, there will probably be another pandemic, but um, are, do you know if there, if there are any discussions about how to continue to educate kids for the next, it, it, when the next one hits? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think we're still in such a crisis phase and dealing with all of the 99 fires around us that people have not started to think proactively about how would we apply what we're learning right now to a future crisis. It's my hope that we will have the time and space to do that eventually. My other hope is that what we're doing right now in terms of working really hard to get kids recovered helps us walk away from this with a new set of kind of best practices about how to support kids and especially kids that are um, uh, experiencing challenges So when we think about what our goals are here in terms of we're working towards some eventual recovery, I think we need to think critically about how we define what that recovery is. Because if recovery is just, let's go back to what the status quo was pre-pandemic, get kids adjusted back where they would have been absent a pandemic, we need to be really honest with ourselves that there were already parts of our education system that weren't working for a large swath of our population. We already had inequities there. So if in this moment we're learning how better to support kids and get them the accelerated learning so that they can achieve better than where we want them to be, can we be applying those best practices to start to gain some traction against these really long-standing inequities in our education system so that we are serving all students well, not just some select groups? And I hope that's the conversation we're having in this moment of walking away from this and having some lessons learned that really helps us start to um, 
uh, take stock of these inequities and be realistic about how we can address them. Do you know if schools are using your data, the NWEA MAP test data, to create a new baseline? Because I'm assuming their old baseline is worthless after what happened during the last year and change. Yeah, that's one of the key questions um, that we hear from our partners who, uh, as I mentioned before, we have these national norms, which have set kind of the benchmark of what achievement was like on a nationally representative sample, but it's all based on pre-pandemic data. So in this moment, schools are asking, how do I contextualize how my students are doing relative to norms that tell us about pre-pandemic data? So that's really been one of the key objectives for our research team that's producing these regular state of the nation reports to help our partners understand what has the impact of the pandemic been at the national level and how can I contextualize what I'm seeing in my students against that. How often are the reports released? We've typically done them in the fall and then in following the spring, the end of spring testing in the early summer. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were going to say you you think... I'm sorry. (laughs) I screwed up your chain of of thought. When you say we're there needs to be a new set of best practices. Is there any data to support what those best practices should be? Well, I think the kinds of interventions and strategies people are picking now, high dosage tutoring, summer school, double dosing math, those are all based on a a research base from pre-pandemic research about how those interventions help support kids. So it's not as if schools are just picking, you know, willy-nilly interventions out of the air. They're using an evidence base to suggest what worked in pre-pandemic times. But it's a fundamentally, you know, really critical question to understand, okay, this strategy worked in 2018 with a really well-resourced staff and all of the implementation was perfect. It's a much more difficult challenge to implement in the current moment at the scale that it needs to be implemented to meet the scope of the problem. So we're building a whole new evidence base now about high dosage tutoring appear to work. Does high dosage tutoring work in this moment to meet the needs of kids in this exact crisis? And that's still an open-ended question at this point. This is really tricky, isn't it? Because like you said, we had all these groups of kids who were suffering pre-pandemic. And now the now we're not only grappling with how do we get those kids to where they should have been pre-pandemic, but how do we get them to where they we really need them to be post-pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I... I my biggest fear is that we take this pre-pandemic status quo as our endpoint here, and I don't think that's good enough. I think this is a moment where we have to really critically uh, interrogate the challenges in our education system that mean it's serving some students better than others. And uh, I hate to rely on the quote that we've all heard too many times at this point, but let's not let this crisis go to waste. And if this is the moment where we can really get um, serious about supporting all kids and creating education systems that work for all kids, then let's do it. Do you have any understanding about whether there's talk of continuing these quote unquote pandemic supports like high dose tutoring, summer school, after we've all, I don't want to say relaxed, I don't know when that will be, but I I mean, it's going to happen at some point. At some point, this hopefully will all be a distant, horrific memory. Do you have any understanding of whether people are talking about these supports, like you said, these best best practices, let's call them, as something that can be ongoing to help narrow these inequalities that 
that have been existing since pre-pandemic levels? You know, honestly, I think that the challenges district and school leaders are facing right now don't allow them to lift their heads up that far, to look that far in the future, because they're facing down this spending deadline for needing to, I mean, the spending deadline, which means federal recovery dollars have to be spent by the end of the 23-24 school year. And our best estimate is that kids will not be fully recovered by that point. So they're already a kind of having to address this, this mismatch between the timeline for recovery and the timeline for spending those recovery dollars. So I know that is making folks be more forward thinking about how do we um, how do we cope with that fiscal cliff and how can we be implementing strategies and interventions that we can continue on past the end of those supports. Um, but that's a really tricky challenges for schools and district leaders. And I think um, as the public, we need to make sure we're having those conversations and putting pressure where it's needed to make sure the district leaders and schools are getting the supports that they need. Yeah, I'm not hearing a lot of those. That's my concern as well. I'm not hearing a lot of those conversations. And it seems like if we're going to, like, sure, let's focus on the pandemic and address that. But there's this elephant in the room, right, that's just going to continue to exist and is, in fact, exacerbating this pandemic data of inequality. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying we can come up with the answer on this call, although... You know, I don't know. Give us another hour. Maybe we could come up with some good ideas. But um, you've you've got some incredible data at your fingertips that, fortunately, you all have been kind enough to release. Now, NWEA is a nonprofit, right? That's right. We're a not-for-profit. And what is what is the mission? Our mission, and it's one I know like the back of my hand because I feel like our uh, it's really been the charge of my research team to enact that, and it is partnering to help all kids learn. And so we want to be the best partner schools can be to help them use data and evidence to be able to meet kids where they're at and support their instruction. And I really lean into that partnering to help all kids learn that we want to make sure we are a tool that's available to our partners to help make education systems that are just and fair and support all learners. And I hope our research helps to do that and tell that story. And that's why we've been so careful in the messaging of what we just released, that it is a good news, bad news story. And my fear was we would lean too hard into the good news and get busy celebrating and take our foot off the gas when we still have a long ways to go in supporting kids and really helping to gain traction on those inequities. Um, so it's been a hard message to tell, but I hope it sounds like it's resonating with you as well. And I hope it's resonating with our partners that there have been some causes for celebration this last year, but we have a long way still to go. When I hear this data, it I mean, I can't imagine working in a school and hearing it, but when I hear it just sitting here as a mom of young kids, um, it inspires a fair amount of panic. Is there anybody, and I'm not saying that's a good thing, but is there is there any sense of let's get rid of, let's say, social studies and do extra math classes? I mean, is, is the answer to take them out of social studies for extra math or PE or... Um, maybe not PE. I mean, COVID, you know, we got to keep them fit. I mean, maybe it's art. Um, but do we, do we instead, is the focus more, is it less panicked? Is it more what you said? Like, let's do this small group teaching. Let's, for literacy, let's divide text into chunks rather than assigning a whole chapter. Um, I mean, I, as I hear this, I want to press the panic button, but it sounds like schools are being, thank God, more thoughtful about that kind of stuff. I don't know the answer to that question about how the at a, at a national level, I'm sure there's no one answer about how schools are approaching this. Um, but I, I share your panic and 
uh, it's also been a tricky message to convey of wanting to sound the alarm without feeling like we're being alarmist. I think there is a lot to be alarmed at here. And my greatest fear would be that we see this, these results and think, okay, well, we just need to double down and it should be all instruction all the time. We're always <laughs> because there's no quicker way to burn out your teachers and your students when we That's have right. joy in the classroom. We don't have room for them to be humans and have social relationships and find enjoyment in their day-to-day lives. So That's I, right. They have to function. Exactly. I hope that's not the takeaway that um, academics is all that matters because it certainly isn't. And it's important to emphasize that these data are just one small sliver of what the experience of kids have been like over these last two years. And there are certainly other ways that they have been impacted in terms of their social and emotional health and development. So too for teachers, this has been traumatic on a really large scale and it's impacted more than just reading and math outcomes. And there are other places we need to lean in and support teachers and students and beyond just supporting their math and reading instruction. Um, so I just want to make sure we have that message of empathy that this is a really challenging time to be a teacher when you also experience this pen, this panic about how bad it's been, but also needing to bring those little people back to the classroom and connect with them and help them connect with their peers and reestablish that love of learning, because that's just as critical to the education experience as is good math and reading instruction. Maybe the good news is that this is an opportunity to have the larger conversation about inequality that has been needing to happen for a long time. And this data help should hopefully help inform that. I hope so. That's been my hope that we're opening the doors to continue to talk about this and really shine light on it and take a really critical lens of what our education system is and who it's serving well, who it's not serving well, and get serious about making improvements and reform so that we can support all kids. Did, did, do you know anything about whether the data shows that the kids stalled early on or did those setbacks accumulate over time? So it looks like there was initial uh, impacts at the really early phase of the pandemic, that March 2020 to fall of 2020, when uh, schools were really grappling, grappling with how to provide remote instruction. That seems to be when math achievement really started to be impacted. Reading achievement held steady at first, but it was over the course of the 2020-21 school year that we saw that accumulation of unfinished learning. Uh, so it was already there present at the beginning of the year, but accumulated over the course of the year. But by the start of the 21-22 school year, it seemed like the bleeding had stopped. Uh, the, we were no longer seeing that unfinished learning get larger. And that's when we starting to see signs of improvement. Before we wrap up here, what is it that you want people to know or what is the, the takeaway um, from this data that that maybe we haven't talked about quite yet that you want people to understand? I think the biggest thing I want people to understand is it is way too soon to take our foot off the gas pedal. We need to be thinking critically about how best to support kids and being really mindful of supporting kids in proportion to their need. That this is the time to really tailor supports and interventions according to how hard how hard hit kids have been. So I just want to reemphasize the point I made earlier that a one-size-fits-all Band-Aid is not going to cut it in this moment. And we need to make sure we're using data to understand which kids have been hardest hit and then support them accordingly. Thanks, Karen. I really appreciate your time and the work that you're doing to provide us with very, really valuable data that will hopefully guide us in the future. Thanks, Kristen. It's good to be with you.